listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. struggling in school, got some learning issues that are going on. They're not particularly happy with the, uh, uh, the education this, this particular young man is getting. And um, it was a kind of a casual get together. And so they immediately apologized and said, hey, I know, you know, you're, you're off duty, but wondering, you know, it just kind of went on, had this. <laughs> um, and I asked, well, so what's, what's the main thing going on with this, this young man? What's the main thing that's really kind of getting in the way of uh, their experience and so on? Well, he's just so afraid of making a mistake. And uh, I, have, I have spoken rather extensively on this particular issue, uh, as I see it, in term, not only in terms of, of spiritual work, but also in terms of education. And education isn't really separate from spiritual work, but to just look at it for a moment or two in the following, in the following way, through, the, through a, a slightly different lens. The idea that there is a mistake ever is somewhat of a paradox because there's a, there's a Zen saying, and I, I wish I could remember the, 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 uh, the monk who said it, but uh, you know, how, how is your life? My life is one continuous mistake. But the relationship with that one continuous mistake can make all the difference. And by that, what, what I mean is, if we look at it, if we look at mistakes as defeats, then that's problematic. If, on the other hand, we look at mistakes as incredible opportunities for growth, they can kind of, you know, push us along the path fuel our stride, so to speak, then it's a beautiful gift. And so one of the things that I have, I have noticed in my now three plus decades in education is the, the inability for um, kids to recognize mistakes as opportunities. Instead, they look at it as a, you know, as a hit to their GPA, as a blown chance at getting in the school they wanted to get into as uh, somehow letting their parents or themselves down, that this move towards perfection actually um, keeps us from finding the glory of imperfection. Keeps these kids, I should say, from finding the, the glory of imperfection. Um, and I think this is kind of a sad deal. I think that if, if anything, um, for us to look at our our work as adults, our education as adults typically is about spiritual stuff. In other words, the, the, gra the real graduate degree we get is in our uh, spiritual attainment. Um, whatever letters we have behind our name, it's, we get to a point where it's like stuff isn't working, something's wrong, something's missing, something's lacking. 
but there's too much of this and none of that. So we try to find balance, and we tend to do that through psychotherapy and some type of uh, uh, gaining some type of spiritual sustenance. And so what I would encourage is, rather than falling into the trap of, that the self-esteem movement has kind of thrown us into, where uh, students don't know how to fail, and their parents, their helicopter parents come in and rescue them at every single, you know, uh, every single uh, uh, opportunity. For ourselves, as grown-ups, making sure that we can take whatever goofs happen and turn them into something really, really powerful by just accepting them, learning from them, and then moving forward. Deal with it, so to speak, and then move on. Carrying it with us, loosely, just like we you know, carry our pasts with us, loosely. We don't hang on to them, we don't cling, but there is no way we can separate ourselves from what's happened to us. There's no way, for instance, we can separate our cultural influence from who and what we are, what we're doing. Same thing with our past. You don't want to ditch it. You don't want to ditch the learning that's happened. But we don't want to look at it as a mistake that's negative, a mistake that keeps us small, but rather a mistake that is anything but. Mistake translated into an opportunity for huge growth. So I think it's helpful, as I was kind of reflecting on this, I was driving home uh, uh, this morning, and I've got, I always find this really hilarious. Um, when you're a kid, you can pretty much fall asleep in the most strange positions imaginable that you could never do as a grown-up. I had both girls in the back seat, and their heads were in these horribly <laughs> awkward positions, you know, you know, like a drool kind of coming out. I'm like, okay, that's good. It's good to be a dad. But how do they do you know, trying to get a picture and realizing that's probably not safe, so I just kind of just let it in. Like, okay, that's good. Remember this one. Um, and arms like back. Whether I mean, so it, was, it made no sense. But anyway, I'm I'm driving along on 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 the highway, kind of reflecting on this and how important it is for us to recognize that there, if if we really experience a mistake fully, then it's not. It's not a mistake. We don't try to modify it. We don't try to hedge it. We just try to experience it fully and then let it inform how it is we meet whatever our next experience is, whatever that is, whatever it is. Then it's not a mistake. Then we're not going at the world from a divided place, but rather from a deeply inclusive place. And this is the this is the road less traveled by. This is the one that makes all the difference. This opening to what is, as it is, and realizing, hey man, big deal. Goof. Moving with it, through it, past it, be transcendent, but also included in who and what we are. And it adds more to this experience adds more to our ability to meet this experience. So, what's the first step? Well, the first step, <laughs> the first step is 
recognize recognize when it is, when it is you think you're making a goof, you think you're making a mistake. Be right with it. It might influence your choice. You might decide to go a different direction, or, but be right there. When the stakes are high, especially, just meet the experience fully with total relaxation. And then when there is this idea that, oh my God, I made a huge error, forgive. I remember hearing a teacher once say, the very first step in any type of spiritual practice, the very first step that you can't go anywhere until you make this first step is complete and total forgiveness of self and other. Until you can do that, you're really not walking very far on the path. You're kind of flirting with it. But when you can take that step of an authentic forgiveness of self and other, boom, everything starts to kind of uh, speed up. Everything starts to open up. And so I would encourage, uh, starting tonight, practice forgiveness. Practice this idea of recognizing a mistake as anything but. Practice recognizing this very moment that you can stop. And you can be with whatever it is without judgment. You can be with whatever situation might be brewing and not have to worry about not being right. Instead, you can just pay attention to being. So as we sit tonight, let's just kind of practice that. Let's just kind of practice being there in that space of not needing to be right. Just being with whatever it is. This might feel a little awkward. It might feel a little different. It might feel a little foreign, alien. That's awesome. Be comfortable with that too. Relax with that. I always think one of the greatest things to practice with is when you get um, uh, when you get a little physical twinge or itch. Just like when you get a little mental thing that kind of keeps looping. Heard it called like a mind worm, you know, or, it's, or a song. You know, when you have a song, it's just like not stopping, just always there. You get to practice with that mentally when we're when we're uh, uh, meeting our experience. Similarly, when we're in meditation physically. I always think it's cool when I get a, um, an itch. And for some reason, it's always right about, it's somewhere here. It's on my face somewhere. And I just sit with it. I let it fill my entire consciousness. And it'll go away. Watch it. Just try it. You get an itch. I can see you guys just. <laughs> you get an itch. Just let it be there. Let it be there. Practice with it. Practice with discomfort. Okay? We can also do this with whatever sense of goof we might have, whatever sense of mistake we think we might be encountering. Just practice with that too, just like it's an itch. You'll see that it comes in waves. It might come back, but then it goes, eh, and then it, then it tends not to become as uh, intense. And certainly not as fruitful to, uh, 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 to uh, embellish it 
or to uh, support it with uh, discursive thought. So tonight, can we sit? Let's just do that. Let's practice. Hoping we get an itch. <laughs> um, but practice relaxation. Recognize that there is no mistake. Recognize that as we open to what is fully, completely, and totally, all sorts of things begin to uh, unfold. When we forgive, the path begins. There's only this moment. All of it filling our awareness. The sounds of the crickets, the soft light of the room, the knowledge that you have people to your left and to your right who are all working towards the same thing. That we're all looking to find peace. That we're all looking to feel a deep, resonant relaxation. That we're all endeavoring to find ourselves through others and find others in ourselves. That we're all reaching out for something that is actually within. made kind of a big deal in this sangha about how we tend to divide the world and our experience up between kind of two places. And indeed, Buddhism does a great job of this, I think, in, in most of its uh, you know, scriptural writing and so forth, where if we look at, um, if we look at what we might call the conventional truth or the normal world, the real world, and then we have the ultimate truth, which is beyond the real world, but carries it with it. Or as Ken Wilber might say, transcends but includes the real world. So we have the infinite, in other words, as kind of the ultimate truth, and then we have the finite, which is right here, right now, this is my finger. You know, this is, okay? But it's also infinite in its scope, okay? Consider this finger. By the way, don't have this dialogue at dinner parties unless you really want to creep people out, but still, you could do it if you felt like it. <laughs> if, you look at the, if you look at your finger, for instance, 
the we would all agree that there are the, the finger is made up of tissue, which is made up of cells, which is made up of molecules, which is made up of atoms, which is made up of subatomic particles, which is made up of quarks, which is made up of strings, we don't know. Okay? Gets crazy at the quantum level. But if we can all just agree on more or less the physics of that, the finger is not only a finger, it's much more than just a finger. It's also all that other stuff. Okay? And the vast majority of this finger is space, which is infinite, right? So the infinite is part and parcel of the finger. It sounds so funny, but just, you know. Um, when you say that to teens, they love that. They, whoa, you know. Um, <laughs> the the point that, that becomes real interesting, though, is when we start to look at our experience in life from the perspective of the finite and the infinite. In Buddhism, we say how there's the middle way. Nagarjuna wrote, you know, on the middle way. It's, it's, it's both and, neither nor. It's not this, not that. It is this and it's that too. So it's right in this real tricky space of not just being the conventional or the real world and not just being the infinite, because it's both. So this is really kind of cool. Walking this tightrope between is the same thing as living in the present moment when you have past and future kind of pulling at you from both sides. It's the same tightrope. And we're still trying to walk this middle way, living a very generous, giving, harmonious life with everything. When in fact we have circumstances in our lives that show up that are specific to us and our experience, then we of course have this ultimate life that is deeply connected with all things and all beings. Which is true. They're both true. We can get lost also in both. Most people end up in spiritual work because they're lost in this circumstantial living that's you know, all about trade-offs and egoic negotiation. And what spiritual work tends to show them is, okay, it's not just circumstances, it's also ultimate living. There's also this ultimate life that you have with you at all times that is working at all times to help you see that you are both of these things. You are small and you are huge. Small self, big self. You are limited and you're infinite all at the same time. So when we get into spiritual work and we start recognizing this ultimate living as being part and parcel with circumstantial or small living, suddenly things ease up a little bit. Pain might hit us, but we realize, eh, it won't last. Everything's temporary. Everything's temporary. Everything is other dependent. You know, everything's interdependent. And everything is infinite and it's at its core. That's kind of cool. So if we can recognize these two truths, as we might say in Buddhism or in Infinite Smile, uh, we might just look at them as as circumstantial life and then ultimate life, 
we can see that circumstances are always arising. Okay? Always right. There's always going to be a circumstance that feels personal. Something's showing up, and it's a sting, or it's a, it's a blessing, or whatever. It's going to show up all the time. We always see circumstances arising, and they remind us, is their gift, circumstances always remind us of our preferences. I've shared this with you. I'm a chocolate freak. Okay? I love chocolate. I have some very strong preferences towards chocolate, nay, attachment. We will call them attachments. But I have a very strong preference when I'm trying out a new ice cream place to go with, do you guys want to take a guess which, which flavor I'm going for that's going to, it's going to teach me most about their process? Say it again. Vanilla. Vanilla. Because vanilla, nice job. Um, you get an A. <laughs> Don't cling to that. But vanilla, there, there are subtleties that you can play out in vanilla ice cream that are much harder to do in chocolate for me. One of the things with ice cream is it tends to chill the taste bud experience, okay? So it, it, it's, it's much harder to, to differentiate off of, I, I don't know why I'm going into this, but just <laughs> stick with me. Vanilla, vanilla, there's, there's, there's more to it. You can t it. For me, at least, I can taste much more subtlety to it, okay? Um, so my preference is to go with vanilla. Now, preferences can go with something that's that innocuous, vanilla, or you might have another preference that is much stronger. Um, I, have a, I have a preference for people, I can't believe I'm telling you this, uh, for people not chewing with their mouth open or talking to me while they have a full mouth. I have the following reaction when people do that. It's kind of like, <laughs> gag reflex just starts. It's like, that is disgusting to me. Now, there are a lot of other things that people can do that I don't find disgusting that others might. We're not going to go into that. But just keep in mind, for me, it's the, it's the chewing and talking, you know, that type of thing. I just, I really struggle with. I really struggle with. Now, preferences, think about your own. Preferences, if you give them a little bit of gas, they point directly to an attachment that we might have. Okay? Might be a personality type. That might be something easy to play with in your own head. What kind of personality type? Do you have a preference for one over another? Okay? Um, preferences point us towards attachments all the time. Even in style. Do you have a preference for style? Do you have a preference for saving money or splurge anything? You pick it. Your preference tends to point you towards an attachment. So circumstances remind us of our preferences. Preferences remind us of our attachments. And attachments always remind us of our delusion. Our delusion is somehow that we don't already have what that attachment, we think that attachment will give us. Our delusion is that somehow we're separate from everything and everyone else. 
or delusion is I am in here and everything else is out there. So what do delusions give us? Delusions continually remind us that we, we have more work to do in terms of awakening. And this doesn't stop. Okay? This doesn't stop. It's a practice. It's a process. We go from recognizing that circumstances show us our preferences. Our preferences point to attachments. Attachments point to our delusion. And delusion points to this idea that we still have further to go on this path. And we start this path by forgiving ourselves of any perceived error, any perceived mistake, any perceived goof. So I think it's helpful to look at circumstances that show up in our life, whatever they might be. Um, since, uh, since my parents aren't here, I can talk about my mom. Um, she would always, you know, cringe when she'd get the phone call. Um, Mrs. McAllister, this is Mrs. Dosman from Vallecito Elementary School. She was the principal. Michael has, uh, uh, you know, and then, you know, fill in the blank, you know. Uh, so she, <laughs> she was constantly dealing with those types of circumstances. And it wasn't just me. She had four of us. And I was by far the most well-behaved and calm. So next time you see her, you're, you're looking at the next. It's Saint Sue. It's actually she's following on Mother Teresa's heels. Um, uh, the idea here, though, is that circumstances show up and they point to your attachment. In my mom's case, is why can't he just, if he only, right? And it can apply to anything. It can apply to partnerships. It can apply to our professional lives. It especially applies to stuff we have going on inside. If only I were more, or if only I were less, right? So these, these circumstances that show up are evaluated by the small self or the ego. And this is what, it, it's a limitless supply of work. It's always, it's gainfully employed as long as there are circumstances that arise that it can evaluate and judge and apply in some way towards a judgment or a plan or it sparks a memory. Anything that's judged, honored, rejected, modified or can be used as a tool either against or towards something that's where, the, that's where the ego, that's where the mind, that's what it gains from circumstance. And what we want to try to do is practice not getting caught by whatever circumstance arises. And I always suggest, just as a uh, you know, matter of course, always, always start with small stuff. So, like for instance, if there is a phone that goes off during a Dharma talk, all right, you can, you can, you can just breathe deeply and not like, <laughs> no, pick it, pick it, whatever, whatever kind of circumstance you have brewing. I'm always good with um, uh, being on time typically, and I live in a world 
uh, where, where most of my, my friends and family are not um, into being on time. And so that's a constant source of uh, practice uh, for preferences. My preference is that they, they get on time, and I can feel that preference turn into an attachment when resistance starts showing up. That's easy. Okay. Um, what's it like for you when uh, someone cuts in line? Maybe that's one where you can practice with. What's it like for you when there's somebody who's driving erratically near you? What's it like when you turn on your, your, your favorite or your least favorite news broadcast? Work with those, because they're easy. The stakes are low. Then you can kind of start bringing it home. Then you can start working with a, uh, a, a relationship that's, that's really meaningful. Then you can work with uh, uh, you know, a person in your life that's maybe giving you trouble. You know, the relationship's giving you trouble. We look at um, that, the area where we contract as being the only place a mistake can happen. The area, the, the area of attachment is the only place, it's the only place where a mistake can really happen because what happens is that mistake the label mistake is then used as a tool internally. I've always loved the, uh, and I don't know who said this, but it, um, it's not me, uh, 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 that guilt is anger directed inwards. Anger directed inwards shows up as this thing we call guilt. Um, mistakes fuel that anger directed inwards because the mind takes that perceived mistake and uses it as a dagger thrown against itself. See what you did again, right, you know? And as, as violent and awful as that sounds, my sense is that each and every single one of us in this room has had one of those self-inflicted attacks maybe not as violent as that or as graphic as what I'm describing, but something along those lines happens almost daily for most of humanity. Easing up on that, being kind, is one of the precepts. Essentially, we are looking at not causing harm, and that applies to the self as well. That we can meet our circumstances from a place of grace and ease and openness and not attack or counterattack. How often is it that we're in a situation where we feel threatened, and then instead of having a conversation about that, or instead of meeting the threat with openness and integrity and honesty, we, we instead bring out the brigades and cause tremendous damage. And we think we're causing damage to the other person, when in fact we're causing damage both ways. It's the arrow that shoots in both directions. So when we contract, that's when we make a mistake. And we can't make a mistake if we're open to whatever the circumstance shows us truly. So we do this by fearlessly observing. And uh, 
I would say, not just observing the circumstance, but fearlessly observing the evaluation of our circumstance by the small self. Fearlessly observing what the ego is doing with circumstance. How ego is using circumstance. Using the attachment to work its own rare kind of magic. So this kind of goes back to what I was saying in the beginning of the, uh, the, you know, the introductory talk. Please practice this. And practice not, not being, um, how do I want to put this? Practice not being so concerned with being right, but rather being concerned with orienting every single bit of who you are around the mystery of it all, around the not knowing, around the one continuous mistake. It's really not that important to be right. Once you... Once you really, really you, you, you touch on this work at any kind of level beneath the surface, you start realizing it's not important that I'm right. It is important that I'm open to where all this is pointing me. So my, uh, my humble recommendation is that, that each of us, and this applies to me too, um, that we look very carefully at uh, how it is we do what we do in relationship to circumstance. As we see circumstances arise, we start recognizing our, our preferences, and our preferences are always pointing us right towards, towards our attachments. And our attachments are reminding us, clinging is reminding us of delusion. It's, it's, it's proving that that there is stuff we're reaching for and stuff that we're rejecting. It shows that up. It shows, it shows that in a way that allows for us to recognize, hey, there's more for me to let go of. And it, it goes into, as I've mentioned, subtler and subtler areas of work the more we practice this, the more we practice opening the more we practice surrender, not giving in, surrender. We're not going at this from a masochistic uh, uh, place at all. Instead, we're opening to what is. We're opening to each and every single circumstance. And what comes out of that opening is a felt sense of joy. It's pervasive. We also might call it love, without the clinging. So in the, in the week ahead, if we can kind of look at that, kind of practice that love without the clinging. Buddhists would call that compassion, by the way. Can we take this wisdom of, of our circumstance and our ultimate life and how that interplay actually can enhance and enrich an experience that goes way beyond the circumstantial, and yet doesn't negate it, allows for us to be in the world but not of it, as uh, it might say in the Bible. Thank you.
I was sharing with somebody, I almost got a new one of these, um, but the uh, cleancanteen.com uh, is kind of grown on me, the silly <laughs> noises it makes. <laughs> Any questions? Yes. Very reassuring. But in the real world, there are things that you could do that the consequences of which would be so severe. Like the guy who just accidentally sprayed and killed two and a half million bees in South Carolina and got this really long holiday. I mean, that's an opportunity for him to grow. But what do you do with the results of this mistake that you've made? How do you, how do you put that? We'll have to wait and see. Honestly, I'm not trying to be flip, I'm to, but I, we're going to have to wait and see. My sense is that um, while I have never made that kind of an error personally, I can't imagine what it's like to be in his shoes and socks right now. You know, So what is it going to inspire him to do? And what is it going to inspire you to do? Whenever I know from... It, it takes it takes very little to inspire uh, individuals to make choices to go one direction or another. And one of the cool things about the hyper distractibility of all of us at this point is that is that all of us are aware now of this particular B issue, as long as we're even slightly plugged into Twitter and or Facebook and or the news or whatever, and um, it has mobilized. Um, same thing, beautiful things come out of disaster, which is hard for the contracted self-sense to, to see at all. But, but really awful things that have kind of unfurled have created also a, a, a backlash that in many cases has changed the course of human history. Um, those little kids that were killed in the uh, uh, Birmingham, Alabama church explosion, it, it was felt differently. Racism was felt differently from that moment on for a lot of people. Uh, I, I remember seeing the corner in um, Saigon where the monk with himself on fire, and he wasn't the only one, but the way he died, you know, the dousing, the ignition, the tipping over, and then while on fire, pushing himself back up in, into, the, into, the, into the lotus position, and then dying, you know? It, it seared itself on the, I mean, so, so these things, that, that wasn't the beginning of a giant peace movement. In fact, the war went batshit crazy after that. But what it's done has, has shifted, it shifts humanity's gears. This isn't to say disaster is good. It's to say that when we start attaching to an outcome, we create suffering. When we start recognizing it as being an opportunity for growth, change, uh, uh, meeting a situation with deeper relaxation and openness, whatever it is, 
this actually helps serve the greater evolutionary impulse of what it means to be alive. And so, uh, yeah, you're right, stakes are high. <laughs> Especially depending on your job, you know? Fukushima. Fukushima. Well, exactly. Well, guess what that's done? I mean, it created a disaster, okay? It created an absolute disaster. But also, it's, it, it, for the first time, the entire world looked at the Fukushima disaster and went, maybe, maybe we should rethink this whole nuclear thing. I mean, France, they, I mean, which is almost, you know, universally nuke, uh, nuclear in its, in its uh, uh, power generation, it shifted its entire, the way, it does, the way it did business. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I don't know that we need to evaluate it in that sense. But did it, is it serving potentially the evolutionary impulse of humanity? Well, it might. Did the Holocaust change the way we look at the world? Yeah. Does it mean it still doesn't have, it still does. But we also have those two words in the back of our consciousness, most of us do, never again. Even though it might, it might show up a little bit, we have this referent by which we can measure any and all types of responses. I hope that kind of makes sense. I'm not saying, hey man, it's all good, because it's not. It's not all good, but it's not all bad. And there is good in the bad, and there can be bad in the good. And so our task, once again, is to go right in that, in that middle way. Well, it doesn't you sound can't like let you be alone. right. Just... Well, so wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Sounds like you're kind of closed to people that are closed. <laughs> My preference is not to be with them. Yes. Okay. So that so and the preference points towards what? Okay. Right. And so we cling. Then to, you're not alone. Okay. So, but but this is what what's really cool here is that when we start, when, we are, when we're trying to be open to not knowing and people that aren't open to not knowing tweak us, mm -hmm. that's pointing to our own closure that's just like theirs, just going in a different direction. 
So now we have something to practice with. Can you be open to someone else's closure? I'm not saying you have to be open to it. I'm saying that's the practice. The practice is letting them fire those arrows or whatever, or be right or whatever, and instead of going, God, I don't like that, instead it's like, wow, they're, they are clinging like I cling sometimes. They're just, they're doing the same thing we're doing, but they might be just doing it in a different direction. And that helps develop a certain compassion towards self and other. We can forgive ourselves for being that way against them, and we can forgive them for being that way towards us or whatever. So it does, it's not, it, it's, we have to be very, very clear and careful about you know, this idea of non-clinging has to apply to everything and everyone. It's like, I'll, I'll give you an example in another direction. Um, and I, I wrote about this uh, in, in uh, Awaken This Life, where I was, I was so blissed out. I was so, um, all I really needed was just food and sleep, and even the sleep was just amazing. Everything was just like, ah. And my teacher was really clear about, you can't stay there. And it's like he read my mind. I'm like, huh? And it's like, everything kind of came back, and suddenly it was like, I'm back in circumstantial life as opposed to this ultimate bliss state. Can't stay there. That's not that. That's not this work. This work is not for you to feel blissed out. This work is for you not to attach. And what you're doing is attaching to non-attachment. You're clinging to non-clinging. Smack with the stick. You know, he didn't hit me with a stick. Because then I would have kicked his ass. But the, <laughs> but the, but the uh, you know the idea was so profound, you know? Can you be open, so open, that another person's closure doesn't close you? Are you immune to it, you know? Have you developed the antibodies, so to speak, the spiritual antibodies to keep you from catching their disease? That's your only choice. You just observe it but you don't evaluate it. You can observe it by saying, wow, internally. Please don't say that out loud. <laughs> I am right, and I'm ramming this down your throat. Wow. <laughs> Instead, the wow happens internally, and you realize it's not, it's not about you. It's not going, even if they're saying it's about you, it's not. You can't take it personally. We just do, but it is the most contagious thing for an ego. To find another ego, absolutely contagious. An ego, an egoic attachment, is more contagious than the common cold. But try it out. Don't take my word for it. I have time for one more. Ray. He's seeing this man bleeding his right, you know, 
And there's real danger. And there's real danger. So she sees a guy. Let's flesh it out a little bit more. She sees a guy and believes he's right, and you see it as real danger. I would paint it as uh, she sees a guy about to go straight and catch a cab on the beach. And says, and, yeah, right. And she realizes he believes he's right. Uh-huh. So what's and the appropriate response? And he's uh, ramming it down her throat, I'm right. Uh-huh. Uh, what about that kind of situation? She should kick his ass. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> First you do. First you say, you, you go, uh-oh, oh, wow, this could be, this could be really problematic. Now, it dep- a lot depends. Is she in a position of power where, where she could prevent the, uh, the bee annihilation? Okay, so, so then, then it's like, all right, what do I do? Do I throw myself on the prop blades and say, no, you're not going anywhere? Maybe. I don't know. What would be the appropriate response? I, can't, I have no idea what the appropriate response would be other than to say it would be generous for all concerned. Bees, pilot, self, everybody. Okay? So in that case, obviously, we'd want to You'd want to articulate in some way, whoa, 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 wait a minute, okay? Call it in the question. Um, uh, and we have opportunities to do this on a daily basis, even when it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily relate to bees. It could relate to any situation that we might face. Do we have people in our lives that can call us into question when we're making decisions? You know, that type of interplay that kind of communication is what allows for, once again, for us to grow. Um, and this is where relationships can and often do become spiritual practice. Not just intimate relationships, but relationships with, well, I mean, you can't, this isn't something we do solo. Otherwise, it's just ego trying to figure out how to enlighten itself. You know? So, in terms of a dangerous situation happening, or, it's a, well, we, we would lodge uh, we fully express ourselves in some capacity. What does that look like? Who knows? Uh, uh, I can I, I bring this up a lot because I think it can go it can go it can have the right impulse, but it can go in the, absolutely the wrong direction. When um, I went to uh, I had a, a, a an experience where I was marching in San Francisco against uh, against. Uh, uh, Shock and awe, okay? And I couldn't believe the level of violence at a peace protest. Unbelievable, you know, burning people in effigy, which is exactly what people were doing to, uh, 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 you know, American visages in other countries and so forth. You know, the chanting, like stuff like, you know, death to Cheney. Now, I am not a fan of Cheney, okay? But re- really, re- so instead of it being a pro-peace rally, it was a rally, or excuse me, a, a pro-peace protest. It was a, this was a bunch of people who were already at war, with war. There's no peace in that equation, you know? If we're attaching to non-attachment, we're blowing it. We're staying, we're staying stuck in circumstantial bondage. Delusion still rails and reigns supreme. So 
this again then becomes this, the, what the practice is, remaining open to not knowing what the appropriate response is, but making sure that we center and orient our life around generosity and act from that place, from a place of relaxation, from a place of peace. And invariably, that, that tends to point us in a direction where more circumstances will arise that will give us yet more, more stuff to practice with. Hopefully, there's lots of high-stakes stuff, too, so that, that we can really, you know, push the, uh, you know, push our envelope, so to speak. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. Doesn't mean sit idly by. Go, I'm not attached. Kill the bees. I hate bees. They sting. You know? Do the right thing. Do the right thing. It's actively engaged. In this way, Buddhism in general and meditative work specifically is incredibly activist in its orientation. It's not about sitting still and never moving. It's about sitting still to practice what non-movement can actually inspire in our movement. Thank you for coming tonight. <laughs>